Kenya is held up as this sort of positive case in the region, as, as a stable country, as a democracy that's standing strong. And, and that's not necessarily the domestic perception where people do see a lot of problems, a lot of failures and flaws, um, and, a, and a big gap between sort of the promise of the constitution and the way it's actually been implemented over the past 10 years. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. My name is Alexis Holwinski. In August, Kenya held elections to determine who'd succeed longtime President Uhuru Kenyatta. William Ruto ultimately entered office on September 13th as the country's fifth president since its independence amidst a national controversy over the election results. Saskia Brehian Maher joins me on the podcast to discuss the 2022 Kenyan general election, its implications for Kenya, and the state of Kenyan democracy. Saskia Brehia Maher is a fellow in the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace's Democracy, Conflict, and Governance program, where her research focuses on gender, civil society, and democratic governance. She is also a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge, where she is working on a dissertation on violence against women in politics and resistance to women's political participation in Kenya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Saskia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, to start us off, general elections were held in Kenya on August 9th, 2022, to determine who would succeed President Uhuru Kenyatta when his second term in office ended on September 13th. Who were the major candidates in this presidential race, and how did the legacy of the Kenyatta administration play into the race to succeed him? So there were two main presidential contenders um, in this past election, and also two main political coalitions that were associated with them. So on the one side, you had Raila Odinga, who ran as head of the Azimio Moja coalition. Um, Odinga has been a longtime opposition leader in Kenya. This was actually his fifth run for the presidency. So he ran for president for the first time in 1997. So he's definitely a fam familiar figure in Kenyan politics. Um, he's from a prominent political family. Um, his father was a key figure in Kenya's independence struggle and actually served as Kenya's first vice president. So. This is really sort of an establishment figure, but who's never actually um, been president or sort of, uh, you know, he been head of government in Kenya. Um, and then on the other side, you had William Ruto, um, who has served as deputy president since 2013 as part of the outgoing Kenyatta administration um, and was part of the ruling Jubilee um, party government. Um, he has an interesting backstory. He's sort of from a more humble political background, um, but has also been in politics for a long time. Um, but now this time around ran under a newly formed political party, the United Democratic Alliance, which was part of a broader um, coalition called the Kenya Kwanzaa Coalition. Um, so you had these two sort of familiar figures on both sides, um, one longtime opposition leader, one current deputy president, both with their sort of respective coalitions. Um, what was really interesting about this election is that even though um, Ruto was in the Kenyatta government, um, he in some ways was the de facto outsider candidate in this race. Um, he and Kenyatta, um, who you know finished his second term, had a major fallout during the, their second term in office. So instead of endorsing Ruto as sort of his natural successor, um, Kenyatta, in fact, aligned himself with his former opponent, Odinga. There was sort of a famous handshake agreement between the two of them back in 2018. 
So what this meant in practice is that you had the opposition leader, Odinga, who was actually endorsed by the outgoing president. And then you had someone who was actually serving in the current government, who was the de facto sort of outsider candidate. So the whole um, election was marked by this somewhat strange political realignment that had happened in Kenya over the past several years. So in addition to those dynamics of realignment and histories of the candidates, um, what other issues define the campaign? So what concerns were at the forefront of Kenyans' minds as they went to the polls? It's interesting that, you know, over the past several years, there was definitely a rising sense of discontent um, in Kenya about the state of the economy and the state of governance in the country. Um, and also just the way the Kenyatta uh, government had managed um, the economy and then the, the several crises that happened over the past several years. Um, the Kenyatta administration really focused heavily on sort of big picture, large scale infrastructure projects um, that were financed through borrowing, but were not really generating a lot of jobs for Kenya's really young population. Um, so there was a lot of dissatisfaction already with a lack of jobs, a lack of um, employment opportunities. Added to that, of course, came the COVID-19 pandemic, which in Kenya, like in many other countries, um, caused major economic disruptions especially for people working in the informal sector, working in tourism, working in services, et cetera, who lost their jobs, lost their incomes. Now, of course, the economy somewhat recovered from that back in 2021 and then 2022, but it hadn't fully recovered. And for a lot of people, they're really still struggling. And then on top of that, you had sort of other economic stressors um, that were causing a lot of um, suffering. So you had um, drought in many parts of the country over the past several years, causing a lot of food insecurity in rural areas, especially in the north. Um, you had then the Ukraine crisis uh, leading to sort of global right, shocks and commodity prices and fuel prices that were definitely being, being felt by people on the ground. So coming into the election season, it was really striking how much economic issues really dominated the narratives around the election in a way that they hadn't really done um, in previous election cycles, just because the cost of living, unemployment, those issues were really top of mind for so many voters. And how did the leading candidates, Odinga and then candidate, now President Ruto, pledge to work on all of these issues, specifically the economics ones that you've just explained? So what were some of their main policy positions and how did they set themselves apart from one another? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, Ruto ran this kind of populist outsider campaign that was quite interesting and really explicitly tried to tap into that sense of economic discontent that I just mentioned. So he framed the election as a battle between, on the one hand, hustlers, who are basically ordinary Kenyans who are struggling to get by, versus dynasties, um, by which he meant these kind of long-standing political families around Kenyatta and Odinga, who are representative of this kind of older political and economic elite and who are really, he painted as kind of out of touch with the concerns of ordinary Kenyans. Um, so, you know, in that kind of drawing this contrast, he of course framed himself as sort of a hustler himself who had managed to um, come from this more humble background and work himself up and, and was really um, putting forward uh, a manifesto built around this idea of what he called bottom-up economics. Um, what that meant concretely wasn't always very clearly defined, but there was sort of a series of, of policy proposals floating around, including um, more loans for small businesses, um, more investments in affordable housing, um, investments and in, in subsidies for farmers, um, 
And also he, at the same time, also promised to kind of reduce borrowing and these kind of large scale infrastructure projects and, and, and um, save more of the country's GDP. So, you know, the picture that emerges wasn't really a kind of a socialist one by any means, but one that really focused on kind of um, more directing more state uh, state money in into the pockets of sort of small scale farmers and small scale enterprises or medium sized enterprises. Um, and then on the other side, you had a Dinga who I think struggled a bit throughout the campaign to really define what his campaign was all about. So traditionally, Adinga has really been sort of um, the candidate who was always for devolution in Kenya, for constitutional reform, for shifting more power from the center to the country's marginalized groups, the country's marginalized regions. That was sort of the brand he had built over the past couple of decades. This time around, his messaging was just a little bit more mixed and unclear because on the one hand, you know, the big picture reform, constitutional reform has been implemented in Kenya, so that couldn't really be his main message. Um, then he was confronted with this kind of hustler narrative that also made it more difficult for him to portray himself as the candidate of the marginalized, particularly because he was allied with the Kenyatta government and with the establishment. So he definitely also tried to highlight economic issues, but it was perhaps a little bit more muddled. Um, looking at sort of the manifesto of the Azimio coalition, there were also very sweeping proposals um, focused on issues like um, access to universal health care, free education, expanding social protection for the for Kenya's poorest families, um, a bit more of a focus on corruption. Um, and then also maybe an interesting point of contrast uh, to Ruto is that Odinga put a lot more emphasis on kind of reviving the Kenyan or building a Kenyan domestic manufacturing sector um, compared to Ruto who had a more of a campaign focused around farmers and agriculture. Thank you. So you touched on this a little bit, especially with Odinga, but ultimately how did each of these candidates' messages resonate with the public? So in what segments of the population did they find their core supporters? And for instance, was Ruto successful in co-opting those that fell into his hustler narrative over to his base or not so much? Yeah, it's a good question. And I haven't seen, you know, a detailed breakdown of sort of who voted for who or detailed analysis. I'm sure that will come, um, uh, you know, down the road as people really dig into into the election and what it what it means for Kenyan politics. I think there's a few things that are worth highlighting. So first, it's it's quite noteworthy that actually turnout was down compared to previous elections. So 65% uh, turnout compared to, I think, 80% um, in 2017 which already highlights that, you know, this election didn't really maybe attract the same level of enthusiasm among voters. And that, you know, even though you had these sort of, uh, you know, two choices, a lot of people didn't really feel maybe that attracted to either of them or felt that they were not really compelling choices. Neither of them was really a new figure on the Kenyan political scene. And I think there was a sense among some voters that they just weren't really offering very clear or convincing alternatives. Um, it's interesting that actually, I think, uh, you know, voter registration for young people in particular was down quite a bit. And I think a lot of young people just didn't bother voting at all. So I think that's that's worth keeping in mind when we think about this election is that I think, you know, as much as Kenyan elections can be sort of all consuming and, and attract a lot of attention, media attention, et cetera, there are also a lot of people who I think were just disengaged from the process. 
Um, beyond that, you know, it is clear that Ruto did mount a very effective campaign. Um, he did get a lot of support within his traditional sort of ethno-regional stronghold region, which was to be expected. But also beyond that, um, he made very impressive gains, for example, in Kenya's central region, um, which for you know, those who are not that familiar with sort of the details of, of Kenyan regional and ethnic politics, um, that has traditionally been the stronghold of Kenyatta, the outgoing president. So one could have, you know, um, expected that some of those votes would go over to Odinga, given, given that that was the candidate that Kenyatta had endorsed. But that didn't really happen. Um, and instead, Ruto made really significant gains. Um, so there was definitely some sort of cross-ethnic coalition building happening, maybe because his message and persona were compelling and because he had a very effective sort of grassroots <laughs> mobilization strategy. Um, and then on the Odinga side, I think the big story is really that I think the campaign was maybe a little bit too complacent. Um, you know, that he thought that this was really his time. Um, he had the support of the establishment. He had his traditional support base. He had Kenyatta's endorsement. So in some ways, the election was his to lose. And uh, what some analysts have noted is that he started campaigning a little bit late um, and maybe didn't quite realize what severe and I was significant of a threat Ruto opposed. Um, he also maybe underestimated just how unpopular Kenyatta had become. And so the way that, you know, allying himself with Kenyatta really undermined his own um, persona or his own image as this, as this opposition leader. It just wasn't as convincing to a lot of voters, given that, you know, he had struck this sort of somewhat opaque um, alliance. A lot of people didn't quite know what was what was involved in that and, and what sort of compromises he had to make um, in order to get Kenyatta's support. So I think all of those factors combined led to, you know, a, a still very close election, but one that ultimately Ruto was, was able to win. Okay. Um, now to take that background with us, I wanted to fast forward to election day and the actual vote counting. The country became embroiled in a national crisis after four members of its Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission, the IEBC, came forward to criticize the process an hour before the rest of the commission released the vote totals. So before we discuss the fallout, could you talk about what the results as reported by the commission were? Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, a quick thing to note is that the IEBC actually took some really good steps to maximize transparency, you know, having experience a lot of uh, issues and failures in the past, um, they changed their process quite a bit and were actually quite effective in the first few days after the election and sort of releasing the results and being very transparent about posting the results on their website. And um, a lot of people were following along and kind of counting um, as the Electoral Commission was counting as well. So it initially looked really good. Um, but then, as you note, there was this, uh, this sort of confusion that emerged um, around the announcement of the final result. So, um, you know, on the day the result was announced, basically the IEBC chairman, uh, Chibukati, came out and said that Ruto had won the election with 50, I think 50.49% of the vote. So just enough to avoid a runoff, which is sort of the 50% the threshold. Um, but, you know, just before that, uh, four of his commissioners basically held a press conference saying, we don't sign up uh, to this result. We don't agree with it. Um, which then led to a lot of confusion in the, in, the, in the days that followed. Now, the day after the IEBC announced these results, um, and with all of this confusion ongoing, Odinga accused the commission of a conspiracy to swing the vote for Ruto. 
and announced his intention to fight the results in court. So could you explain the legal battle that unfolded and how it was resolved, um, as well as how the Kenyan public reacted to the ultimate ruling? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways this wasn't entirely unexpected. Um, it was clear that it was going to be quite a close election based on the opinion polls that had been released in the lead up. Um, and so the closeness of the results and the fact that, you know, there is this history in Kenya of kind of electoral uh, fraud or electoral problems um, meant that there was always going to be sort of a high likelihood of some sort of <laughs> contestation going on. And that definitely happened. So uh, what happened is that, you know, Ruto initially sort of claimed victory. Odinga said he wouldn't accept the outcome and instead um, made a petition to the Supreme Court um, claiming, you know, that there had been various forms of manipulation. I won't go into the details, but all in all, um, didn't seem like they had a very um, compelling case. Um, the various points that they raised, one was about, you know, the electoral commission chair announcing the results, even though not all of the commissioners had signed up to it. So there was a question around whether that was even constitutional. There were questions around discrepancies in reported numbers. Um, some of which turned out to be simple mistakes in reporting that had actually already been corrected. Um, there were also some claims that uh, various governorship elections had been postponed in some counties. So Odinga um, argued that that had um, sort of disadvantaged him by depressing turnout in those counties. So there was a series of points raised um, in front of the court. I think the general consensus was by those who, who followed the court case closely that those claims weren't particularly convincing. And ultimately, the Supreme Court unanimously um, rejected that petition, um, finding absolutely no evidence of rigging and issued a fairly, I think, damning verdict in some ways. Um, it's clear that there were some issues with electoral administration, with the IEBC, that there were some problems that need to be addressed, but there just simply wasn't any evidence of sort of widespread rigging or manipulation. Okay. And you've alluded to this already a few times, but as you said, this is not the first time Kenyan general elections have been publicly disputed. So what do such controversies tell us about the status of public trust in Kenya's electoral process and maybe more broadly its democracy? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, there have been uh, a lot of issues in past elections. In 2017, the Supreme Court famously completely annulled the election, presidential election, and it had to be held again because there had been pretty widespread failures in transmitting votes from, from the polling stations to, to the telling centers. Now, this time around, in some ways, actually, the process worked better. Um, the, the IBC made some, you know, some improvements. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, you know, there was more transparency around the vote counting process, even though it ended in this sort of uh, confusing, um, yeah, sort of turmoil uh, in the final hours. Um, but there's definitely an issue here where already before the elections, trust in the Electoral Commission was very low um, among Kenyans, which is understandable because there have been sort of, you know, repeated issues, some of them caused by capacity failures, but some of them also, I think, caused by just underinvestments and efforts of political interference um, in the Electoral Commission. Even in the lead up to this election, the government was very slow to fund the Electoral Commission, for example, which slowed them down and in, in doing the voter registration campaigns. So there have been these, these sort of repeated power struggles and then these problems around the elections that I think do um, 
yeah, have sort of reduced people's faith in the process. Now, added to that is the fact that there was a lot of misinformation um, circulating, you know, on social media platforms, et cetera, about the election as well. So all of that, I think, creates a challenge for the IEBC going forward, despite these improvements that I think we have to honor and sort of recognize that there, there is still a challenge ahead in terms of rebuilding trust in the electoral commission and the electoral process and making sure those kind of episodes don't repeat themselves in the future. To take a step back for a second, um, how have neighboring countries, the African Union and the US responded in the past month as Kenya has navigated this presidential transition that was pretty contested? And did any of these parties express concerns? Um, to my knowledge, I don't think any country expressed serious concerns. Um, you know, there were some countries that were quite quick to congratulate Ruto um, after the initial announcements. Uh, some sort of waited and and just kind of issued statements saying, you know, let's let's move ahead with the process um, and respect the court ruling and and wait for the court ruling, etc. After the court ruling came out, I think generally the sense has been that, you know, they've been various heads of state have congratulated Ruto, have sort of emphasized that, um, it, you know, it, it was commendable in the sense that there was a peaceful transfer of power. Um, Odinga ultimately accepted defeat. Um, and so I think there's been a lot of focus on sort of reinforcing that this process was in a way and unfolded in the way it should have unfolded. Um, and I think it's 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 worth noting that, you know, Odinga, even though he contested the outcome, he didn't call for sort of mass mobilization or protest. He he used the formal channels, the, the formal channels asserted their independence from um the outgoing president, from the state in some ways. Um so I think there was a lot of focus, especially among the US and the EU and other international partners of the Kenyan government in sort of um recognizing and celebrating the process, more so maybe than specifically Ruto's victory. Um, but I think now as Ruto is in power, his cabinet is is in place, I think there's also just a focus on kind of moving the relationship forward and, and, and working with the administration on various joint priorities. Finally, to bring us up to the present, um, as you just led into, Ruto was sworn in as president on September 13th, 2022. So thus far, how has his administration been perceived by the public? And have Odinga's accusations of fraud cast a lingering shadow on his legitimacy in any way? at least nationally? I mean, I think generally there's a sense, a bit of a sense of relief <laughs> that I've observed um, uh, in Kenyan media, social media, um, among the Kenyans I've spoken with since the election. You know, there's a sense that people kind of want to move on. Um, as you've mentioned, you know, in the past, sometimes Kenyan elections have been surrounded by really prolonged disputes and, and contestation. I think there was not a ton of appetite for that this time around, and people kind of wanted to move on with their lives and also wanted actually an administration to be in place to tackle the very real issues that the country faces. So I think that's the first thing of just kind of a, a sense of, of moving on, um, even among those who are maybe not happy with the outcome um, or who might still have some doubts about, you know, whether the process um, was entirely legitimate. Um, the second thing I would note is that, uh, you know, there is some concern about Ruto and mistrust of Ruto in some corners um, of the Kenyan public, obviously in the Azimio co coalition, but also, you know, in some corners of, of, of Kenyan civil society that have traditionally had kind of a bad relationship with, with Ruto, given his, his history of um, being involved in electoral violence in the past, his really, you know, <laughs> history with the International Criminal Court and how that case unfolded. Um, 
So I think there's concern um, and, and some, some worries about what RUTU will mean for Kenyan democracy going forward, for the government's relationship with civil society, civic space, um, with sort of checks and balances. I think it's too early to say how that will unfold, but that's definitely been in the air as well. Um, and then, you know, among Ruto's supporters, I think there is a sense of sort of <laughs> um, anticipation of kind of how this administration will tackle um, the many issues facing the country and also kind of how they will live up to the campaign promises that they made and this this idea of bottom-up economics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, already there is a sense that actually the, the, the government will face some really hard choices, right, where on the one hand, they are facing this this mounting public debt. They've said they want to reduce borrowing from China and 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 um and sort of Im implement more fiscal discipline. And Ruto has already announced various kind of debt reduction strategies um, that he's going to initiate. But then some of those directly contradict, uh, right, some of the promises he's made in terms of fiscal uh, subsidies, redistribution, loans, etc. To to um, yeah, to ordinary Kenyans. And so I think there's definitely a tension there. Um, we've already seen it in, he announced, for example, that he's going to remove some subsidies um, that I think already caused some backlash because people were not really expecting him to do that, given that he was saying he would support, you know, small scale businesses and farmers, et cetera. So I think there are tensions in his agenda. And I think how he will navigate that going forward will really be an important area to watch. So you've touched a little bit on like the tensions going forward and what he's begun to prioritize. So combining that with the sentiment you also talked about, about both international partners and people within the country wanting to move forward, what do you think this can tell us about the direction of Kenya? Um, I mean, I think taking a step back and, and just sort of thinking about the state of Kenyan democracy, I think there's sort of the positive and the negative trend lines, right? Uh, the positive on the one hand is obviously that there's been another um, peaceful transfer of power. There's a president who served his two terms and then stepped down and another you know, person has come in. And I think that's something to celebrate on a continent where a lot of presidents have tried to sort of hold on to power and ignore it or overturn term limits, et cetera. Um, there's other positive trends, right, that um, we've seen in Kenya over the past decade, like the new constitution that's been implemented that has really decentralized power um, in quite a significant way, um, away from the national to, to um, the county level. Various institutions like the judiciary, like the Electoral Commission, once again, asserted sort of their autonomy and independence from the executive during this election, right, with the Supreme Court, um, you know, issuing its ruling against, uh, against Odinga and, and in some ways also against Kenyatta's interests and the IBC kind of standing its ground. So I think there are these positive um, trend lines. That doesn't mean that there aren't deeper issues um, that sort of Kenyan democracy and governance faces going forward. I think sometimes among Kenyans, there can be a sense of frustration that Kenya is held up as this sort of positive case in the region, as, as a stable country, as a democracy that's standing strong. And, and that's not necessarily the domestic perception where people do see a lot of problems, a lot of failures and flaws, um, and, a, and a big gap between sort of the promise of the constitution and the way it's actually been implemented over the past 10 years. And I think there's still some major problems when it comes to accountability for corruption, for um, abuses of power by security forces and the police, 
um, there are issues of democratic performance, right? Actually delivering on electoral promises between elections that all need to be resolved. So I think going forward, I think it'll be really important to, to kind of watch these areas, right? Watch what's happening with, uh, in terms of corruption in Kenya, what, what's happening in terms of um, checks and balances, in terms of the root of government's stance towards the judiciary, towards civil society, uh, whether in fact there will be some kind of effective opposition. Um, the Kenyan parliament has traditionally been quite weak in exercising oversight over the executive, and it's not quite clear whether you know, the Azimio coalition, which really formed around the election, can transform itself into an effective opposition party in, in that sense. Um, there are also many issues still with, you know, women's representation in government. Uh, there was some uh, progress uh, with respect to that during this election, but still it's, uh, women are still really underrepresented in Kenyan politics compared to other countries in the region, like um, Uganda, for example. Um, so there's definitely sort of a lot of uh, issues to watch over the over the next five years in terms of Kenyan democracy and how it will continue to evolve. Thank you so much once again, Saskia, for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.